and welcome back to Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser, and this week my guest is Dr. Lindsay Elmore. She is a pharmacist, a natural wellness expert, a vegan cook, a yogi, a podcast host, and an entrepreneur. She translates complicated science into understandable stories and travels the world educating audiences about natural wellness. Dr. Elmore has spoken to audiences on five continents and more than 35 countries. Her educational material have been translated into more than 25 languages, and she reaches millions on social media globally. She recently launched a new health and wellness website called Wellness Made Simple, and she could be found at www.lindsayelmore.com. Everybody, please welcome Dr. Lindsay Elmore. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me today. I am so excited. I found Lindsay through TikTok, and there was something that she did that made me... I said that I need to have this conversation, and everybody needs to hear this conversation And especially with what we're going through in the pandemic is like questioning your doctor's authority and knowing that they're just practicing medicine. They don't have all the answers and that you have every right to research and find your own solution. And I really, really appreciate that. So Lindsay, let's talk about your journey. How did this all begin for you? So I, it all started when I was really young, honestly. So I was always a natural born teacher. I loved teaching from the very, very youngest of age. I played school at age three at my sixth birthday party. I taught a dance class and I was pissed off that nobody was paying attention to me. And then I got very involved in theater and I could act, I could sing, I could dance, I could do, I could do a lot on stage. And so I decided, you know, I really, really think I want to be an actress um, when I grow up. And my mom is, is a nurse. And so she had been taking me to work with her because she was a single mom. So I had been working in the doctor's office, filing charts, answering phones, all of that for many, many, many years. And as early as like age 12, I would go in and help at work. And so I always loved to work. I always loved having responsibilities and I always loved teaching and I always loved performing. When I told my mom that, hey, I think I want to be an actress. And she was like, no, no, no. You're going to get a real job is what you're going to do. You're going (laughs) to get a real job. And so I went forward, experienced some trauma um, as it relates to to theater, but I went forward and was like, okay, well, if I have to get a real job, let me get a degree in something science that I like. So I got a a bachelor's in chemistry. And then at that point in my life, I was so ready to leave the state of Alabama that I was like, I must go. I must leave. I must get out of here. This is not where I need to be right now. And so I moved from Alabama to California, was accepted at the University of California, San Francisco, where my uh, doctorate is from. And I studied and became a pharmacist. And I then did two years of postdoctoral residency, the first in general medicine, and the second year was in family medicine. And it was kind of during that second year of practice that I started going like, something's off something, something's off. And I was always a really wackadoo pharmacist that knew as much about, I knew as much about herbs and supplements as I did about meds. And so I was starting to kind of get 
this niche of people who were like, well, if we don't know, let's ask Lindsay. She really understands supplements. She really understands all these things. And so I then graduated from my residency and let me take a step back. There were two really pivotal moments that really impacted me deeply as it relates to questioning authority and questioning what's happening. The first is that I made a mistake, a critical mistake that someone could have died. My patient could have died. Calculation error. It was just simple calculation error. So when you haven't eaten for maybe three, four, five, six days, which happens in the ICU where people are so sick. And if you can't get a feeding tube down their nose or whatever it is, you end up having to do something called TPN, which is where you get all of your nutrition in through your veins. Well, when you haven't eaten in seven, 10 days, it is critical that you start very, very slow with your TPN or else you are at risk of something called the refeeding syndrome, which was first characterized by veterans coming out of World War I who had been so starved for so long. And then they started eating, just eating and eating and eating. And they ended up dying because it causes these shifts in your potassium and all of your potassium rapidly like moves into your cells and your serum levels drop precipitously. And so I forgot to divide by three in my calculations. I, so you do your, you do all your math and then you're like, okay, We're going to divide by three for day one, divide by two for day two, and then we'll see how things go. And I come in to work the next day. Her potassium level was 2.4. A normal level is four. Two is pretty like rapidly fatal. I mean, it was dangerous. And I, I literally almost killed someone because I forgot to divide by three. And so I, in that moment, I really, really became aware of the gravity of medical errors. I mean, medical errors, we don't think about it. Medical errors are something insane, like the fourth, fifth leading cause of death in the United States. And those are just errors. Those are not even the known side effects of medications, which are just hugely rampant and can also be deadly. And and the second time that this really became real to me is I had a patient who needed to transition from what's called U100 insulin to U500 insulin. And U500 insulin is five times more concentrated than regular insulin. So in regular insulin, 10 milliliters is a hundred units of insulin. U500 insulin, 10 milliliters is 500 units of insulin. So the dosing error, the room for error is very, very narrow. And I remember transitioning this patient from U100 to U500. I couldn't sleep all night because this person also had some mental health challenges. And so I was like 
taking the syringe and drawing out on the syringe. We wrapped tape around the syringe so that he, and I was like, hang this on your refrigerator because you obviously can't reuse the same syringe over and over. But I told him like, hang this on your refrigerator and match them up every match them up, match them up. And I was like, and if you, if you're worried that you're doing it wrong, you take a picture of it and you send it to me. I mean, like that's how worried I was about this dangerous medication that I was putting someone on and And, administrating it by themselves at home. So they can easily do like something wrong themselves. And also I would say 95% of nursing staff has never used U500 insulin. It's, it's extremely rare. It's for people that have many, many years history of, of such profound insulin resistance that they're taking a hundred units in a shot and a mix-up, a vial mix-up would very easily kill a patient. And so like, I'm even calling, you know, like the peeps that are his nurses. And he, when he came into the hospital, I'm like running to go catch the nurses and be like, Hey, let's do an in-service about U100 versus U500 insulin, because this drug is very dangerous. You now have it in your, in your storage thing. It's called a Pixis um, or an Omnicell. And, and I was like, you now have it in here. If you happen to grab the wrong vial, someone can, someone can die. And then I also remember when I sat down to memorize, there's a list It's called One Pill to Kill, and it is a list, and it's a very extensive list of medications that if a child were to take them, one pill is enough to kill them. One pill. And it's common stuff. It's like beta-blocking drugs that are used to treat blood pressure. Insulin is on the list. If a kid got a hold of a U. 500 insulin and decided for whatever reason to inject it into their arm because kids are curious and do weird stuff sometimes, kid could die. One dose of an opiate medicine, a, a, a barbiturate, one pill to kill. And then there's also a list of drugs called beers list, which are medications that you should never take over the age of 65. Because they increase the risk of falls and they increase the risk of death and they increase the risk of this and that and blah, 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 blah. And so I was just like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of these meds are on beers list and yet all of my patients are on all of these meds. Why do we not pay attention to this? And so I started to see some cracks in the system. So then after I finished residency, I started work at a school of pharmacy and I was in charge of the -the over-the-counter medicines course. And this was a a conservative school, a very, you know, faith-based organization. And I got into an argument with the faculty because I, in this over-the-counter medicine course, I wanted to include a module on women's health and sexual health where we would cover pads, tampons, condoms, emergency contraception, the diaphragm, like all all the stuff that's for women's health and sexual health that's on our pharmacy shelves. And they told me I couldn't do it. They were like, you're not teaching. I I know. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I know. And I and I just I was like, guys, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're telling me that we as a group are okay graduating pharmacists that can't explain how to use some of the products on 
their pharmacy shelves. And they were like, one woman looks at me and I'll never forget it. And she was like, that is something that your mother teaches you and no one else. And I was like, (laughs) I was like, honey, God bless the single dad with a scared 13 year old daughter that walks into your pharmacy. You know, like that is just, that was so absurd. And how many mothers really have that conversation with their daughters? I mean, I never had that conversation with my mother. The first time I ever had a yeast infection, I had no clue what the hell was going on with me. I mean, I I remember just like thinking, I can't tell anybody a, cause I was ashamed and thought like, did I get some sexually transmitted disease? And now I was totally at a loss. Mm-hmm. And, and these are the things that, you, you know, it makes me mad that she said that because it's like not everyone has a mother that like will sit them down and tell them all about their parts at all. I, I know. And my sisters were the ones that raised me. And even them are so like they're in their 50s. And I remember one day she told me she had a urinary tract infection. And I was like, "Ooh, you've been having sex just kind of like joking around with her. She's like, oh, oh, I'm never telling you anything. Like literally what year are we in? What are we? I know. It's, well, and it's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do we as women think that it is our responsibility to deny the fact that we are sexual beings? Right? That's insane. And plus when we don't have these clear cut conversations, it puts children at risk because children then do not craft the vocabulary to be able to explain when and if, God forbid, they are being abused. You know, if you're teaching your daughter to call her vulva, which, by the way, the the vagina is an internal thing. The vulva is outside. If you're teaching her that that is a cookie This is a true story. Kindergarten teacher, kindergartner keeps coming in saying my uncle so-and-so keeps touching my cookie. And the teacher is just like, well, that bad uncle, he just steals all your snacks and this and that. And it took her three weeks to piece (gasps) it together that this child is being abused. And so we have to just say things clearly. We have to say things just plainly and clearly. And so then I, I left that job and went to another job where I was a transitions of care pharmacist. And that job was really hard on me because so transitions of care pharmacists, our main objective is to ensure that people don't bounce back to the hospital within 30 days, because then the center for Medicare services won't pay for their hospital readmission because they blame it on bad hospital services to begin with. Don't get me started. That doesn't make any sense. Don't get me started. And so I was working with all of these people that were like heart attacks, strokes, had had acute decompensated COPD or heart failure, all these disease states that have very high readmission rates. And I remember walking into a patient's room who had just had a heart attack and feeling so at odds with myself because this person had come in taking zero medications. And here I am, their pharmacist. That's like, here are now your five medications that I'm going to need you to take for the rest of your life. And I know, well, that's the treatment guidelines. And so Medicine is so jacked in this country because of something called the Flexner Report. 
The Flexner Report is over 100 years old. It was written by a guy named Stanley Flexner, and he basically indoctrinated a cult of drug dealers back in the 1910s, funded by the Carnegie Foundation, funded by the Rockefellers in cahoots with Big Pharma. And so up until this point, when the Flexner Report came out, there were all kinds of medical schools with all kinds of trains of thought about how to be healthy. Some medical schools would include a little bit of Chinese medicine or a little bit of Ayurveda or a little bit of whatever. But the Flexner Report, when it came out, it basically said diseases get treated with drugs, period. Diseases get treated with drugs, okay? And that's what they indoctrinated into the culture of medical school. Then fast forward to the 1950s, we start to see the appearance of a man named Arthur Sackler. And Arthur Sackler changed pharmacy forever and always. Arthur Sackler was the first person to say, you know what? Antibiotics are good, but people only take them for like a week. Mm -hmm. What is a drug that someone would take every single day? And he goes to his boss and he (laughs) says, I am going to make you the first ever million dollar drug in this country. First ever million dollar drug. They came up with a drug called Librium, which was the very first benzodiazepine. So we don't really use a lot of Librium anymore, but these are drugs that are like Clonopin, like Ativan, like Xanax. Okay. So this was the first of them all. And he marketed it in two ways. At this point in time, direct-to-consumer advertising for pharmaceutical drugs was illegal, as it should be because the United States is only one of two countries in the entire world that allows direct-to-consumer marketing for drugs, for pharmaceutical drugs. It's it's absurd. Which is why we have those commercials with like everybody frolicking on the, you know, in a field of lilies. And if you have this, you should take this. Right. Yes. So Arthur Sackler was a genius, an evil genius, because he marketed Librium in two ways. Number one, he created what are called detail men, which now we call drug reps, drug sales reps, pharmaceutical reps, pharmaceutical reps. Yes. These are the people that show up at the doctor's office and, you know, tell them about their newest, latest and greatest drug. And so he first started that where he was sending sales agents directly to prescribers. Hey, here's free samples. Here's free samples. Here's free samples. Then they started taking out ads in journals that were supposed to be for the physician, but they thought there's a high likelihood that prescribers might have these journals sitting in their waiting rooms where patients just might happen to get their hands on them. And they made this huge splashy ad campaign marketing this benzodiazepine, this sedative hypnotic med similar to Xanax or Ativan, as mommy's little helper. Wow. Mommy's little helper. Okay. So Arthur Sackler is just the beginning of the story. Fast forward to Arthur Sackler's grandchildren. They decided that they were going to overhaul the treatment of pain in the United States. And they came up 
with a little drug called Oxycontin <gasps> to do it. Oh, so the Sackler chills. It's so gross. It's so gross. The more you know about the pharmaceutical industry, the more you will throw a middle finger to it and understand that the best doctor lives within you. Mm-hmm. And so the Sackler family created Oxycontin, created Purdue Pharma. They managed to weasel their way past the FDA. And listen to this, listeners. The very first prescription labels on OxyContin, the FDA allowed them to get away with right there on the label, (gasps) non-addicting. Why did they say it was non-addicting? Well, they marketed, oh, we've got this robust clinical research trial published in New England Journal of Medicine. BS right there. Call it like you see it. What they had was three sentences written as a commentary where a physician came in and said, I've been giving Oxycontin to my patients. They all went home from the hospital just fine. None of them became addicted. Yet you were talking about like three days of exposure to Oxycontin on the inpatient side. And then you're sending, I think it was something ridiculous, like only a handful, 10 patients that that little tiny commentary got used over and over and over and over again, the world's first non-addictive opiate. It makes you sick. To make it even worse, then they started getting even better and more aggressive with their marketing. And they started saying, they start, and this was when I was in pharmacy school. This is what we were being taught. If the patient is still in pain, you double the dose. If the patient is still in pain, you double the dose. That was their marketing. Then the Sackler family got even more schmarmy and they decided, look, we've got Dr. So-and-so over down the road who is prescribing a hundred, a hundred prescriptions of Oxycontin a month. So don't even bother going to see doctor over here who's doing five. You spend all of your time and effort with that doctor that's doing a hundred and convince them to do 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, pay them, give them family vacations, give them, you know, speaker bureaus to where they're making a lot of, a lot of physicians, believe it or not, actually make way, 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 way more money as a speaker for the pharmaceutical industry than they do being a physician. And the FDA did not put a stop to it. They allowed the first Oxycontin that went out the door, 10 milligrams. Okay. Well now we got to double the dose. So then the FDA approved a 20 milligram. Then they approved a 40 milligram. Then they approved an 80 milligram Oxycontin. Addicts are popping up everywhere. Physicians are becoming addicted because of course, if a, because here's another thing, these sales reps, they drop off samples and trust me, Lots and lots of physicians and their nursing staff, and even me as a child, would take these samples. I vividly remember there's a drug called Bextra. It's a very similar drug to Vioxx. Who remembers Vioxx? Vioxx is a selective COX-1 inhibitor that Pfizer knew in clinical trials was causing cardiac problems. They got it approved. They falsified their data. They suppressed their data. They, wow. they, 
They use a manipulation called relative risk reduction versus absolute risk reduction. I could explain what that is. That is how Lipitor got onto the market and how every single person in the United States all of a sudden needs a statin drug. The OxyContin story is horrifying because it took 400,000 deaths for the FDA to do anything. 400,000 deaths and countless numbers of people that still are just haunted having to go to NA meetings years and years and years later. The FDA did not put a stop to it until until Purdue Pharma tried to produce OxyContin 160 (gasps) milligrams. Wow. The more you learn about the pharmaceutical industry, yeah, the more I, had a, you- I actually had a woman on my podcast earlier for anyone who is listening her story. Her name is Amy Green. And just by looking at her, she came into the studio. You think she has it all together. She was this beautiful blonde, like six foot something, just every muscle you ever wanted in your body. She's just so beautiful. And um, she was a soccer star or an athlete in college and she hurt herself and they prescribed her Oxycontin, and then she got so addicted to it, became a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. I'm like, how do you go from being an Oxycontin to a heroin? Like, I mean, and her story was just amazing and incredible because it just shows that anybody who's prescribed this can literally just go down the path of addiction. In addition, I watched that Netflix doc. I don't know if it was a documentary or a movie. It was the, called The Pharmacist of a yeah. old, an older gentleman who was just noticing how these people were saying, I, I have all this pain. And first of all, you can't measure if they really are feeling pain and if their pain tolerance is at a 10, if they're really suffering or if they're just saying that in order to get these pills in order to just numb out. Right. Yeah. That pharmacist, his, his name is Dan Schneider and he is still alive, still practicing, took on a physician named uh, Jacqueline Claggett. Who yeah, was, I watched the but, whole thing. It was so yeah. good. And if you haven't watched Dope Sick, no, I haven't seen that one. Okay, Dope Sick is it's a it's a drama, so it's a fictionalization, but Michael Keaton plays a small town doctor and it tells the story of how Purdue Pharma went and strategically targeted coal mining towns in West Virginia and basically destroyed West Virginia. Oh. And my friend is a physician who is an extraordinary woman and advocate. And she is from West Virginia. And she's like, I can barely even go home now because my whole everything has just been destroyed. So that slippery slope that your guest was talking about, about going from Oxycontin to heroin, what people are not even talking about anymore um, that we need to be talking about is fentanyl. Oh, now. Gosh. Yes. We were just having this conversation because of that show that is like glorified on HBO Max, which is Euphoria. The girl on the show is like total addict and she just got a suitcase full of drugs. And the first thing she does is fentanyl. And I'm like, why are they glorifying this on HBO Max to teenagers? Mm -hmm. When I just literally saw a kid being posted on Facebook for touching what he thought was going to be like, you know, ecstasy. And it turned out to be fentanyl and he died the same day. Uh, There was another uh, thing on TikTok where a a cop was, uh, you know, doing like a, a search and seizure or whatever in a car and he accidentally touched 
just touched fentanyl and went almost into cardiac arrest right then and there. It, it is the most deadliest instant killer. And mm-hmm. people don't even understand it at all. They're, I don't. Why would they even produce it? Well, in the right hands of a skilled anesthesiologist, you're talking about tiny, tiny volumes of of med that are going to be administered because when people are very, very sick, if they have any kind of congestion problem, the amount of fluid that you can get into that person might be a determining factor of a lot of things. And so in the hands of a skilled anesthesiologist, it's a very small amount of drug to put a patient to sleep and to wake them up. Mm -hmm. And it also in perioperative, like in post-operative, same thing. It's very easy to give the, the patient a tiny, tiny bit of fentanyl versus super allergenic morphine. And so opiates come in three varieties. There's the full natural opiates, which are opium. Mm -hmm. There's, and then morphine is also a natural opiate. And, but that means that there's an increased risk of side effects. And so then they did semi-synthetic and then fentanyl is a fully synthetic version, cheaper to produce than heroin. And that's why people are getting it on the streets. And we also have a huge problem called the dark web. And I I sit here and I'm like, how do you even get on the dark web? I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) And I don't know that I want to to know. I I know. I don't want to know. I don't want to get on there. (laughs) But you can basically buy anything off of the dark web. Any drug, people are being human trafficked on the dark web. Children are being sold on the dark web. There's just so much ick, but I don't want our listeners to go away and be like, oh my gosh, it's hopeless. I truly believe that good always triumphs over evil. Mm -hmm. And I think that right now, a lot of people are having very profound moments of waking up and realizing big pharma doesn't get to control the world because they have so much money. Big Pharma has so much money. They've bought politics and they've bought the media. And they're controlling the narrative. Yep, absolutely. And and that's the whole thing with, um, it's funny because going into the vaccine, you know, my niece just got COVID and she was also vaccinated. So all these things that are happening and, and it's like this whole entire conversation where you're like, why aren't we questioning everything? Everything yeah. you're telling us, the World Health yeah. Organization, the CDC, all they're these, all bought. they're all bought. And that's they're exactly what, that's exactly what inspired me to have you on this podcast is here's an educated woman who has all these degrees, who's been in the industry and is also questioning the industry that she's in. So yeah. that just goes to show that there are so many other people who are waking up to the idea that before pharmaceuticals were inserted, the human body actually healed itself. This episode is sponsored by CoachSnap. Are you looking for an all-in-one platform to help you build your coaching business? Then you need CoachSnap. It allows you to schedule appointments, collect payments, train and support all of your clients' needs. Health, fitness, hockey, football, or even life coaches can use CoachSnap. It's the business platform that will help you be the best coach you can be. And people want to talk about how You know, and I don't mean to go down a vaccine rabbit hole. And I will go ahead and just say that the narrative of of pro-vax versus anti-vax is also a construed narrative. 
I personally have taken dozens of vaccines in my own life, and I have injected hundreds and hundreds of them into people. I am in no way a, quote, anti-vaxxer. But yeah. we, ha- we have to know that the vaccines are safe and effective, peeps. Right? And so people want to say that vaccine saves lives. And I'm like, well, the polio vaccine came out right at the same time that modern sanitation did. And so like we removed one of the infectious sources of it. I remember a friend of mine, do you remember chicken pox parties? How many of you are old enough to remember chicken pox parties where if one kid got chicken pox, everybody came over, got their chicken pox all at the same time. And then everybody is immune for life. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day and she was like, oh yeah, my daughter's got the measles. And I was like, how's she doing? And she's like, ah, she's running a little bit of fever. She'll be okay. You know, like you guys, we, we actually have the ability to, to heal. And the whole thing of that human beings are supposed to be completely infection free for our entire lives is idiotic. It's simply crazy to think that. And so one thing I really, truly despise about the current narrative surrounding, surrounding the, the COVID vaccines is everybody talks about how this is the first ever mRNA vaccine. Mm-hmm. That's a lie. It's an outright lie. There are video footage during the Gerald Ford administration of the very first mRNA vaccine against swine flu that wow. everybody had to get. Everybody had to get it. Jerry Ford, he's on TV saying, every American, it's your duty. Get this vaccine. Fast forward about three months, that vaccine is off the market because maybe maybe more than three months, but fast forward. That vaccine is off the market because they started to notice profound side effects called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Guillain-Barre syndrome is where the mRNA vaccine got into people's bodies and caused so much nervous system inflammation that it started um, breaking down and people became permanently maimed from, from this. And now we know that basically every vaccine can cause Guillain-Barre syndrome. Oh. And the and the other thing that we learned from our previous experience with mRNA vaccines is, so this whole narrative about there's a new variant. Yeah, friends, that's because coronaviruses are endemic. They have co-evolved with us for tens of thousands, if not millions of years, there have always been coronaviruses and there will always be new novel coronaviruses. I don't even know if I want to go down this rabbit hole. People are going to think <laughs> I'm crazy. Um, no, the difference I, don't, in- I don't think you're, you know, honestly, I just think that everyone should question and everyone should do their own research rather than just sitting in front of a television screen and allowing the narrative to be downloaded into your subconscious and to believe what they're selling you. Especially like you said earlier, if you go back to the beginning of pharma and what was their reason and their intention, it wasn't really to heal the people or the human race. It was to create money and to make more money. And if you could follow the money trail and realize that their interest isn't in our health. If it was, um, I watch these videos too, where people go to different countries and they're eating the exact same products and they lose weight. Why? Because there's no corn syrup 
in their food. There's all these things that the FDA has approved in our food, in the consumption of what we're eating and putting in our bodies. And it's causing us to have all these heart disease, cancers, all these things that weren't really like, why does China not have all these cancers? You know, why don't they have an obesity problem? Why, you know, because of the fact that we as the United States have become a commodity to them. All we are mm -hmm. is a commodity. And if we stop and think and take back the power and realize that we actually have, we're the best, we're in the best of times and we're in the worst of times, right? We're in the best of times because we actually have access to knowledge mm -hmm. and we can do our own research and we can go down our own rabbit holes and we can make our own decision. But it's yep. also the worst of times because some people don't want to do the research and they go and they try to find an expert and they don't realize what the experts real who has their hand in their pocket, really. Right. Like the mm -hmm. pharmaceutical reps, the pharmacy companies, the people that are on TV saying this is what's the, what you need to do. Like, really take time before you inject yourself with a government experiment. Well, <laughs> like, trying to, like, figure it out. Right. Or right. To because other means. Yes, because, you know, like the 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 whole thing with mRNA vaccines is you really don't know how bad the vaccine might be until you get the next variant. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're seeing. All of these people that have been double, triple vaccinated now that we've got Omicron. <laughs> if you look at these peeps that are getting it, they're getting very, very, very sick. And the whole idea of question everything, when all of this first started, I had so many friends that were posting their pictures of a book called Harrison's Principles of Internal Medicine. And guess who authored that book? Mm. One of the lead authors was Anthony Fauci. You mm. open that book, which is a quintessential medical text. And what does it say? Sponsored by Prozac. Mm. Prozac and, you know, which was the first ever, that might have been the first ever billion dollar drug, which doesn't really work. If you're taking an antidepressant and it makes you feel better, amazing. A ton of people take them and don't feel anything differently. Yeah. And so it's just the layers and layers and layers of like, wait, what? So, you know, because this this virus that we have is so dangerous because it is infectious to both bats and humans. Well, during the Obama administration, Obama came to the conclusion that what is called chimeric research, where you're splicing DNA from one species into a human DNA was unsafe. And so guess what we did? We outsourced it all to China specifically to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, specifically to a woman named Xi Jing Li, specifically to take a bat coronavirus and she attached a spike protein to it. So to make it infectious, to, to make it adhere to the ACE2 receptor. That lab, that lab had been under investigation for two to three years because their quality control of how disciplined they were to allow or not allow viral species. So when you're doing dangerous research like this, where you're taking infections and attaching spike proteins to them to make them go into the cell via the ACE2 receptor, the ACE2 receptor is one of the most widely distributed receptors 
in our entire body. And that is why COVID presents with so many different weird symptoms. That's why being able to smell like not being able to smell. That's because COVID infects the epithelium that surrounds your olfactory nerve. Friends that have lost their sense of smell due to COVID, please hear me, hear me. Your olfactory nerve is not, your olfactory nerve cannot be infected by COVID. There are no ACE2 receptors on the olfactory nerve. Your nerve is in there and it is working. What has happened is that the epithelial cells that surround the nerve have been infected and have become inflamed and have now been sending aberrant signals all throughout your brain. You can retrain your sense of smell. It is going to take time, but get your spices out of your cabinet and start smelling oregano and smelling um, cinnamon. If you've got maybe some like lavender essential oil, smell all kinds of different smells, take tons of zinc Zinc deficiency has been shown uh, to be a really bad precursor for COVID loss of smell. I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on and on. My husband still hasn't gotten his smell back. It's been two years Mm. and his smell has not been completely back. There's just so many things that like I just question, uh, like the more that I watch the news and the more that I read articles and the more that I hear people's stories. And it's not just about COVID, like talking about any other disease, like fibromyalgia or people who have Hashimoto's, people who are dealing with like autoimmune disorders, like why don't we stop and think like, where is this all really coming from? Where is this the root cause of it? And a lot of it has to do with trauma. I I read a lot of books with Dr. Bruce Lipton, who is one of my favorites. And he talks about how when he was doing tests on cells, just changing, putting the same cell in a different environment changed the way they reacted to things. And we like, I love that they say like, you're not telling us to go outside and get vitamin D or to exercise more or to eat more greens or to have more vegetables or to drink, take your supplements and your vitamins. Like that's not told to us. Can you imagine if back in March of 2020, if Fauci and Cuomo, both Cuomos, imagine if they had gone on TV and said, guys, we have a virus out there that's unlike anything we've ever seen. I know we tell you this a lot, but we really need you to take us seriously. Exercise, sleep well, get more nutrition in your food, go spend time outside. Everybody, we're going to need you to run to the store and don't hoard. We got to have enough to go around, but please go pick up some vitamin D, some vitamin C, some selenium, some zinc. We know how to stay well. Mm-hmm. We just choose not to do it. And I remember the first week, because I was living in Manhattan. I was living in New York City when all of this started. And I remember I laid in the floor and sobbed mm-hmm. in March of 2020 because I said, I, I just, I had this, there was this knowing just deep in my gut that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. That people are going to die, not, not only from COVID, but from the fear and the trauma that's being yeah. enacted upon us. And I called my friend and a pharmacist friend, and she and I just sobbed with each other. We were like, just wait, this is going to be the fastest run to a vaccine in human history. 
and we will not know if it will be safe or effective until it's too late, until yeah. they have attempted to to give vaccines to every person under the sun. So, you know, a ton of people, a ton of people are like, this is an experiment. You know, this is an it experiment. Is. And because they don't know what the side effects are and they can't. Well, and they're trying to suppress the data for the next 75 years. The British Journal of Medicine, the British Journal of Medicine is one of the most, I, I love the journal because I think that it challenges the narrative. They put out a paper last week and they were like, we need to see publications on safety and efficacy of these vaccines now. Not in 75 years. You know, how many women were screaming at the top of their lungs that, hey, I took this vaccine and my periods changed. And now I just saw a publication last week. COVID's, COVID vaccines may be related to infertility and changes to menstrual cycles in women. And it's like, we, we, we women, we know that. We've been trying to tell you. We've been trying yeah. to tell you. And the fact that it's trying to be now pushed on children, that people are starting to establish, there are some states in this country where your child can be vaccinated without your consent or knowledge. Mm. Excuse me? Excuse me? Like, again, I love a vaccine that's been shown to be safe and effective administered at the right time, because timing is also very, very important. But if you're having to bully people and coerce people and put all of these fear tactics in, you're going to lose your job, you're never going to be able to fly, you can't cross borders, blah, blah, blah. Is, is it that it doesn't work? Is that is that why you're having to bully people into this? Or is it because you want all the control? Or is it like the whistleblowers at Pfizer said, we are now run on COVID money, you know? Um, and Gerald Posner, um, number one uh, New York Times bestselling author of Pharma. His book is called Pharma, Greed, Lies, and the Poisoning of America. He is one of the most ten tenacious investigative journalists ever. And in his book, Pharma, and in his um, interview with me on my podcast, mm -hmm. he goes through and he, there's an entire chapter called The Next Pandemic. Mm -hmm. And he's like, just you wait. Whenever that next pandemic comes around, these pharmaceutical companies will be ready and willing to make a boatload of money and not care who they hurt along the yeah. way. And that's what's sad is that you you really need to, whoever's listening, just do your own research, ask the questions, and your body will tell you what you need. Mm -hmm. Your body will tell you, like, do you need this? It's like when you're hungry. I was just telling uh, my friends the other day, you know, like, I was dead asleep the other day, and my stomach, like, growled, and I had to go to the bathroom. It's like, your body knows what to do. When you get yourself cut, within three or four days, within four or five, seven days, whatever, your skin is already regrown. The cells have regenerated and have created a new, we have done this for years and years and years. Like, this is what I don't understand why people aren't asking these questions or somehow like starting. Well, I love that you said earlier that people are starting to wake up. Like my little niece who was like, wait a minute, I took the vaccine. I took the second one. I did the booster and yet I still got COVID. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so how is this preventing anything? Well, and I think it's adorable how the media calls these breakthrough infections. No, 
let's call them what they are. Vaccine failures is what they are. They're not breakthrough infections. It is a failure of the vaccine to do its job. And going back to what I said earlier about absolute risk reduction versus relative risk reduction. Everything reported in the media is something called relative risk reduction. When what you actually need to look at is something called absolute risk reduction. And the difference between ARR and RRR is a very important distinction. And I I look at like a drug like Lipitor, which came on to the market and it's claims that you have, you know, a 35% reduction in cardiovascular risk. But if you read the little asterisks at the end of their ad campaign, it's like the actual difference was 1%. Mm. That is because absolute risk reduction is what is the risk in the control group versus the intervention group. And you just subtract those numbers, okay? And you get, okay, here's the reduction. That was 1.3%. But if you then manipulate that data to where you have your control group minus your intervention group over divided by the control group, that is what is called relative risk reduction? What is it relative to the baseline risk? That is where you can start to get 30% out of what is truly a 1% reduction. And I actually posted that graphic on my Instagram. You can go and see it and just look for Lipitor sales graphics if you think like I'm cray because it's written there in black and white and research the difference between absolute risk reduction and relative risk reduction. I just, I'm so, I love that you have this open conversation. It's sad that like, for me, I was telling my husband, sometimes I don't want to post anything or say anything or what I believe because you're immediately like shunned. The other day when I was leaving a doctor's office and I had my mask on and this little old lady did not want to come into the elevator because there was three people in there and she then she was like, no, 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 I'll take the next one. And then the elevator goes down one more level. And another little old lady is like, well, are you guys boosted? Are you guys okay? Isn't that a HIPAA violation? Do I have to tell Nobody's you? Nobody's business. Right? Do I have to tell you would what you, I have? Would, <laughs> would you ever in your right mind walk up to someone and be like, have you taken your birth control today? Hey, um, how's your antipsychotic med? Have you taken that? Um, And people get so mad at me because I I posted something and I was, and I, it's not my quote. I can't claim it. I heard it on the Mind Body Green podcast. There was a physician and she said, focusing on masks and social distancing when 88% of Americans have metabolic disease is like wearing a seatbelt in a car with a drunk driver. It's like, why don't you just not get in the car with the drunk driver? And people got so mad at me because they're like, screw you. Diabetes is not contagious. And I'm like, excuse me? (laughs) You genuinely think that we as a culture do not spread diabetes? Because of course we do. It's, It's ingrained in us so deeply to where we don't even think about hey, this processed food is super pro-inflammatory and is causing diabetes. Think about this. 
somebody posted, why do we think we're sick all winter and it's flu season? Well, we go from candy holiday to eat as much as you can on one day to eat as much as you can for a month to why don't you drink yourself stupid for a few weeks? And now we're approaching candy holiday number two. And so cannot tell me. And plus, how many studies do we have about problems that parents pass to their children? Diabetes is generational. Cardiovascular disease is 100% contagious. We infect our friends and our family members with it every time we show up at potluck dinners with unhealthy unhealthy casseroles, low quality meats. We infect and spread metabolic disease every time that we're yeah. like, come on, just have one more glass of wine with me. Right? Come on. You don't, you don't need to go to bed yet. That is, that is literally a spreading disease one unto another in a very, very similar way that we share infections. Absolutely. I totally agree. I took a whole entire year off of drinking and I remember people would make me feel like I, I had <laughs> a disease because I didn't want to drink. And I'm like, no, I just don't want to drink. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like the way it makes me feel the next day. I don't feel productive. And, and, they just felt like so un- like so uncomfortable that they didn't even want to hang out with me at the party anymore uh, to the point where I just stopped going to the bars for the entire year that I decided to stay sober. And the yes. entire year that I decided to stay sober, not once did I get sick. Not yeah. once did I get sick. Not once did I have a sleepless night. Not right. once did I, have an, did I have an anxiety attack. And it's all these different things that I am starting to now at 42 years old think about like things that are, are important and things that are not important. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and our body, as we get older, can't handle alcohol like we could when we were 20 years old. Or I know, handle, like the foods, like the milks and the cheeses and all the processed food. I can't do it anymore. So which is now right. the reason why I'm questioning like all of the things that are going on in the world, especially right now with the pandemic. I'm like beginning yeah. to have these questions. And I just I'm so thankful to be able to have this conversation with you and not feel uh, attacked like these are my <laughs> thoughts these are what you know what I mean and and have this right. open conversation with somebody who's educated in the field so that other people who are listening and are having the same thoughts you're not alone even though the, no. the narrative is trying to push that you are and we are the minority actually we're not alone you know mm-hmm. so don't feel alone it's okay to ha- voice your own opinion it's okay to have a different opinion if we all were the same and we all were robots, then it would be a completely different society. We're all allowed to have our own opinions and we're all should be allowed to treat our bodies the way we want to treat our bodies. Well, and it's interesting too, you know, I think about the alcohol is a very interesting thing. I mean, I remember one time a friend of mine who did the same thing. She she decided to stay sober for a year. Lord, you're a stronger woman than I. I I decided to stay sober for a year and I made it four and a half months. And I was like, I'm good. <laughs> you know, I'm all right. I am A-OK. But I, <laughs> I, I can, when on earth would we ever go like, what do you mean you're not going to drink the sweet tea? Just drink the sweet tea. It's just sweet tea. Why don't you just drink sweet tea? Versus like people get very upset about alcohol. And if you want another book, to read uh, David Michaelis's book, The Triumph of Doubt, goes into how do major industries 
create doubt that their products are unsafe. So the tobacco industry wrote the book and then the pharmaceutical industry duplicated it. Big sugar duplicated it. Big alcohol duplicated it. Big agra duplicated it. And he goes through and details the history of this whole thing of (laughs) two drinks a day is safe and good for your cardiovascular system is a complete and total lie. Yeah. Complete and total lie created by research funded by the alcohol industry. It, It just goes on and on. It does. There are so many different things. We can talk about so many different topics because seriously, but the whole point of this podcast is question, research, trust your body, know that it knows what it needs, feed it what what the most important things, which is laughter, love, sunlight, water, kindness. Yeah. Kindness, nutritious foods that have tons of color in them. Right now I'm drinking my celery juice for my gut biome. Like just it's, Seriously, do the research, Mm -hmm. do the research and love your body. Because if you're really thinking that the pharmacy companies are loving your body and care about your health, you have it completely wrong. All they care Uh, about is the bottom bottom line, which is how much money are they bringing in? As we wrap up this episode, Dr. Lindsay Elmore, what would be your nugget of wisdom for anyone who is listening now? You are your own best clinician. You know inherently what the right choice for your health is. And I've been saying it for years. There's no wrong choice. There's no right choice. There's only your choice. Mm -hmm. And our job is to remember that your choice doesn't have to be anybody else's choice. Mm -hmm. It's just yours. And and I also go to, I haven't, uh, I've been affected by alcoholism in my life. And so I go to Al-Anon meetings mm-hmm. and one of the things that we learn in Al-Anon is if you're offended, keep it to yourself. Don't let, don't let other people know that like, don't criticize people. Don't just stay in your lane. Mm-hmm. The more that you work on making yourself the best person possible, the better off you're going to be. Absolutely. I love that. Stay in your lane. <laughs> mm-hmm. It'll help it'll help by so with so much in society today. So, Lindsay, how can my audience find you? All you have to do is head to lindsayelmore.com. Also, please go and check out my functional medicine training platform, uh, wellnessmadesimple.us. Listen to me on the Lindsay Elmore show and you can find me very easily on all social media platforms, TikTok and Instagram and Pinterest. Just Google my name. Thank you again for listening to Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser. If you love this episode, make sure to share it with your friends. You can find me on the internet at fearlessfemale.com, on Facebook, the Fearless Female Movement, on Instagram at Fearless Female Podcast. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And ladies, remember, we have the power to rise and face everything. Until next week, goodbye.